This is Mythos, and I am the creator, Nicole Schmidt. This podcast is a storytelling journey through world folklore. Here, you will experience fresh interpretations of traditional narratives, mainly with a darker edge. The aim of Mythos is to ignite a passion for the lore of generations past by telling the stories with a sense of magic, as if they were entirely real. With brief context and analysis in the introductions, the main focus is the retelling of the stories themselves. Welcome to Series 3, Folklorica Nordica. As these autumn days descend into the dark days of winter, we will journey into subterranean and spiritual realms through the folklore of the Nordic world. We will encounter the shamans, the subterranean beings, the wise folk and healers, and trolls and giants of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, the Faroe Islands, and Finland. In these northern lands, we will encounter a fascinating body of tales retold to evoke not only the original magic of the stories, but also the beautiful and mysterious regions they come from. We will begin with the beginning of all things, the creation of the world according to the great Finnish epic, the Kalevala. In the beginning, the great daughter of the sky, the Airlass, journeyed this great celestial sphere and had all the freedom of expansive sky. Yet she longed to create and so brooded and hovered over the surface of the deep over the world's primordial oceans. And sensing some great principle of life, the great spirit of the air plunged into the sea, and the ocean winds blew her womb full. The daughter of the air was impregnated as she gestated in the oceans of old. And for innumerable ages she longed to emerge. For innumerable ages she rolled and shifted in the deeps until the summer of the 10th age. She lifts her head above the surface, lifts her forehead from the waters. She at last begins her workings. She commences her creations on the azure water ridges, on the mighty waste before her. And where her hand she turns in water, there arise verdant hillocks. Wheresoever her foot she rests, there creates holes for fish. And when she turns upon her side, there arise the level sandbanks. And when she dives into the waters, there fall the many deeps of ocean. And when her head she points landwards, there creates wide bays and inlets. And when she swims from shore a distance and floats upon her back, there she forms great rocks and boulders and the hidden reefs created. Now the great air daughter, Ilmatar, the creator of the world, then does finally give birth herself to the hero Vinamonin, a great poet shaman who, in the Kalevala, further aids in the creation of the world. And it is significant that Ilmatar reaches her creative powers in the summer, after a long dormancy, and this episode will focus on folk tales 
whose backdrop is this time of year, the summer season when the lush reproductive potency of the world is obvious and abundant. Across the Nordic world, Midsummer is celebrated with huge bonfires and traditionally was believed to be rich with magical properties. Agrarian Finns, for example, celebrated Midsummer by adorning rooms with flowers, green branches, and twigs. According to Finnish folk belief, Midsummer was abundant with vaki, or vaki, a term referring to the inherent power of all things. Midsummer was believed to be charged with curative vaki, arising from the fecundity of nature at the height of summer. Perhaps then it is this prolific nature of summer life that informs a variety of Nordic folktales in which charcoal burners, lumberjacks, and half-grown boys and girls who tend cattle on outlying summer farms often experience preternatural beings who are erotic and seductive. And perhaps it is also the solitary nature of these summer occupations, when lone men and women, boys and girls, linger in wild spaces, whether that is to burn charcoal or to take cattle to distant mountain pastures for grazing. Indeed, the summer wilds are full of magic, beautiful and foreboding. It is in the summer wilds that ordinary humans might encounter the Huldra folk, the hidden people or uh, fairy folk of Nordic lore. So, from Norway's verdant mountain pastures where lonely dairy maids tend the seder, or the summer farm, to the shadowed forests of Sweden and Denmark, we will encounter the strange beings of the summer wilds. Story 1. The Mistress of the Forest and the Charcoal Burner, Sweden The charcoal burner had run the images of the endless silent forest and sylvan lakes through his mind an infinite number of times and through varied transformations. In all the timeless in-between moments and all the moments in which he actively worked the charcoal kiln, he had become many things. From an eagle-eyed view, his mind soared over 10,000 lakes, either shining or brooding in the forest. In his mind's eye, he saw troll feet stamping into a startled earth, the resulting craters lapping up the rain to fill their pained emptiness. He felt that his own mind were like those lakes, whose waters thereafter reflected the earth's many moods. Transcendent blue, thin-lipped gray, and soul-plummeting white. And such a lonely occupation made one both retreat and expand. Day deepened into the bluish twilight that marked Midsummer's Eve in a way that defied time and tickled one's animal senses. The charcoal burner wandered into the twilight-shadowed forest, twelve sheets of paper in his grasp. 
he knew precisely where to find a veritable sea of ferns, which he had heard since childhood, only cast their magical seed on Midsummer's night. He knew the process well enough, as described by the old folk, though he had never tried it before. Placed twelve sheets of paper under the fern, and when the magical seed fell, it would burn through the paper except for the final sheet. So as he placed the sheets under a particularly large and beautiful fern, he smiled at the rumored fantastic possibilities of collecting these seeds. Finding treasure, becoming omniscient, luck in all enterprises. His reverie was interrupted by movement. He strained to see into the twilight of the forest. The spirit of the day had been worn into a shadow. A living, exhaling shadow that for the man had a mesmerizing kind of density. Suddenly, the foliage and ferns shifted, shaken and tossed by something with a great bulk, animal density the nostril-huffing weight of a beast. The man remained perfectly still, staring, thinking he saw flashes of something pure white, briefly amidst the shadowed trees and foliage. White fur, but short, on something with real height, not like a wolf. And when the man saw a tentative hoof step into the clearing, emerging from the grainy dimness of the forest, he gasped, for now a long, gangly white leg fully emerged, and now a lowered, antlered head. The charcoal burner remained very still in wonder at what now emerged. A moose of the purest white, a white that sang with soprano tones and was sight-soft like clouds. This pure white beast stood with perfect stillness and peace, yet Underlying this moment of halting beauty was a, a strange sensation that the man could describe as a low sort of hum, as if the world were vibrating. It was a tension that put the man on his guard, so much so that he barely noticed the white moose quietly take its leave into its guardian woodland. There was a strange winter sharpness now, strange amidst the summer baritone hum of confident prolificness, the great summer hum of self-assured abundance. No, he wasn't cold, just startled like the sound of ice cracking. Yet the sense of presence that emanated from the shadows was lovely, dark, and deep. It was the presence of a song that deepened the summer warmth, nothing audible per se, but an elegant movement. The man smelled and felt in his bones a womanly musk, mixed with the sweet loam of the forest, and as the scent blanketed his mind, made him more animal than man in his staring and wanting, something else emerged from the the dim tree line. A white leg, powerfully sinewy and lusciously thick in all the right places. It was a white that sang with soprano tones and was sight-soft like clouds. Then a head of impossibly golden hair, tumbling around supple shoulders, ducking under a branch, a head which then lifted, crowning a naked body of impossible beauty, now fully visible in the fern-carpeted clearing. The charcoal burner could now see her eyes, inhumanly large but beautiful nonetheless, eyes like the thousand lakes, 
Fey waters that reflected the Earth's many moods. Transcendent blue, thin-lipped gray, and soul-plummeting white, and around the pupil a shifting green, like leaves changing hues in the alternating shadow and sunlight of a summer forest. And as he watched, she, with gliding steps, nosed around the clearing, tilting her head with girlish curiosity. And when she turned her back to him to look around further, he stiffened with both repulsion and desire. For the alabaster form of her legs and rounded backside were indeed otherworldly. Yet something strange could be glimpsed through her shifting, long golden hair. In her back, grooves perhaps, scars maybe of a parched roughness. The charcoal burner had the impression of a, a forest disease, an ailment that would burrow into the skin, lay eggs, and replicate its own form, dirt and bark. And when he realized, he realized when she pulled her hair over her shoulder that this was precisely what he was seeing. Where smooth skin should have been, there was rough fur bark. Her back was composed of tree skin of the most rugged and ravined kind. Something in him felt disgusted, could not help but imagine where this tree growth might mingle with blood and flesh and bone, yet the desire to touch it, like the way he would lay a meditative hand on a tree trunk in his loneliest moments. Well, his mind was overcome. So commanded and overpowered, he began to make his way back to his hut, and when he opened the door, he knew she would follow, and longed for it to happen quickly. Now many in his tiny hamlet would later tell the story of his staggering, saucer-eyed return, an untimely return, an anemic emergence from the tree line that struck many as utterly bizarre. What man would leave his livelihood so prematurely unless something terrible had happened? Indeed, he had been undone for night after night. He would walk with certain and guided step into the twilight of the woodland, looking tormented and gaunt. Some feared he had been taken into the mountain, but a group of men knew better. They saw a longing in his eyes that spoke of another being, the Skogsra, the mistress of the forest. So the charcoal burner's friends decided to intervene, for he would not eat or drink and was declining quickly. They decided to keep vigil, to watch the movements of the forest at the fey hour of day, when the bluish haze of twilight feeds the magic of the world. And if they heard a lovely voice gliding between the close-knit firs and birches, they would pin him to the floor of his hut. And indeed they heard it, a voice that sang with soprano tones and was sight-soft like clouds, a voice rich with summer opulence. Flashes of a softly glowing white figure darted from tree to tree with hide-and-seek playfulness, with a definite sense of invitation, of beckoning. But they held the charcoal burner back, and while he became wild and thrashed and bit and foamed at the mouth, the Skogsworth calls continued until the men feared that he might die from the strain. And many in his tiny hammock still speak 
of one man, one friend, who dared do what the others did not, who picked up his hunting rifle without a second thought and walked out into the field, taking aim with his keen eye. The shot shattered the silence, and once the sound echoed into nothing, a screeching cry of many women's voices blasted out of the forest. For though barely visible, the shooter could see a lithe figure laying motionless on the forest floor. Today, the men who are still alive will tell you that the forest was awash with hushed treads as a glaring, wailing group of Skogsra came forward and cradled the body of their dead sister, hissing fey curses towards them as they skulked back into the woodland. And one man will tell you it was worth losing the eye he had aimed with to save his friend, for he woke the next morning to not find it gouged or poked, but to find that his eye, his aiming eye, had disappeared entirely. Story 2. The Dairy Maid and the Elf King, Denmark. The woods were a midsummer summons. The moss-colonized trees, the canopies of shifting golden beams, and sun-filtered brilliant green leaves, the loamy decay intensified by warm rains. The lilting chatter of the Dairy Maids was also a summons, and a presence heard and longed. They had all walked a distance to find the grazing cows out on the commons and were returning with the milk, as they always did, when one girl called for Alvilda. But Alvilda did not answer, and at first the other girls only smiled and tutted. This wasn't the first time their friend had gone astray in the woods of Bogo. She had been known to wander off, saying on many occasions that she had been distracted by the calling of the forest. But she had never gone far, had never had her mind and senses completely swallowed by the strange forest. But when their calls were met unanswered for quite some time, as more and more their cries for Alvilda thinned into nothing amidst the unfeeling firs and birches, they all felt fear. Finally, the girls looked through the tree line and onto a moor, where amidst a brilliant purple bed of heather, they saw Alvilda sitting alone, her arms wrapped around her legs, her knees drawn to her chest. And as they drew near, they whispered amongst each other, noted her utterly bewildered look, noted with even lower tones that they were on elves more and should not linger long. The light felt subdued here, like their known world was simply a mirror image, a reflection on the dark surface of a pond. The purple heather and the tufts of grass and the squat white-barked birches seemed to move slightly, though the air was very still and hot and churning with floral scents that seemed otherworldly, unfamiliar, and all of this made them nervous. The girls rushed to Alvilda, gathered around her, and promptly lifted her up, ushering her through the forest towards home. 
and they flittered nervously through the profuse spawning bracken, which seemed to lightly stroke their legs with intention. They hurried over moss beds that seemed to summon them to lay and wait. And as wafts of a strange sweetness seemed to caress and whisper an invitation, the girls made even greater haste, asking Alvilda in low and wary tones what had happened. And Alvilda answered, as if speaking to them from the depths of sleep, yet eyes wide open and seemingly awake. While in the midst of a large golden clearing of tall ferns, she said, a strange wind, like a voice, but also like a spirit, began to speak words that were luxurious and dripping with tree sap. The voice, Alvita said, was a midsummer summons, and somehow the verdancy of the ferns and the brilliant gold of the sun seemed to reach a peak that stung her eyes and made her feel new and strange longings. Then a man stepped into the sea of ferns and smiled at her. He was such a man, Alvilda told her companions, like a fir tree in its prime where height and fullness of canopy bring feelings of beauty throughout the body. Like mottled sunshine on dark forest floors was his hair, and his eyes seemed to have feasted on ancient woodland for time immemorial. And as he approached, she felt a paralysis of soul, and while he exuded a kindly air, beneath the surface of his soil was a humming loneliness. Yes, said Albita, the days of old extended from him and seemed to soak their sunlit fern sea, seemed to make the light brashy and glaring. She was alone, and there was something about the upturned corner of his mouth that she did not like. And when he took her face in his hands, Alvita said, her body seemed to lose all will, and her mind lost language. He said, when the other girls call, do not answer. This is our secret place. I want to be with you, not them. And though the girl felt his longing, she did not feel his regard, loved his nearness, but hated the upturned corner of his mouth. She loved the closeness of his lips to hers, but hated the sudden binding in her guts, hated the inner bonds he now breathed into her mouth while whispering sensual words. You will come when I call, won't you, said the man, releasing her and backing away slowly. The girl nodded, full of craving and resentment. And when you found me, she told her companions, I had no idea how I had gotten to Elves Moor. And one of her companions said, I do, for this is the haunt of the Elf King, and it is he who has put you under his spell. And such a spell it was, as Alvilda would soon find out. Every day, she would hear the voice luxurious and dripping with tree sap. That midsummer summons that came as a question, but gripped her insides as a command. And every day she experienced on Elves more what the softness of moss was made for. Felt in newly awakened regions why sunlight on skin and cool waters make one sigh. Yet in her limp responses to questions, in the increasing vagueness of her movements, in the strained eternal loneliness of her distracted being, the cost 
became clear. The elf king was nursing on her soul, feeding on her marrow, perhaps, some strange way, a sinewy hunger enveloped her body and soul. And just when the bewildered village lost all hope of ever delivering her from his grasp, a squat old woman of ancient mien wandered into the village from her forest hut, took Alvilda by the hand and said, This is what you must do. Her words dripped with tree sap, and Alvilda nourished herself. Later, amidst the purple heather and sinister twisting of dead trees, Avilda walked with awakened purpose towards the elf king, who blazed with summer warmth. Stopping suddenly, she met his perplexed gaze with determination and called out, Turn around, so I can see whether you are the same in the back as in the front. The elf king shifted, and he narrowed his eyes, like one whose desire has been suddenly thwarted. And in his shifting, Alvilda saw the power of her command. So she repeated the phrase a second time. Turn around, so I can see whether you are the same in the back as in the front. And the elf king strained and froze, obviously fighting against her command. But when she said it a third time, the force of her will and the thrice magic made it impossible for him to disobey. He turned, and the midsummer sun emerged from behind a cloud. Avilda gaped as the curtain of light illuminated a strange dark nothing, where that elegant column of muscle and skin should have been, where his back should have been, was only hollowness, a gaping nothing. Alvilda gazed and said, You are a hollow man, Elf King, a hollow man. And with this revelation, Alvilda felt the suckling, anemic presence in her bones lift, felt a surging in her mind and muscles, felt like herself again, as the Elf King walked away and left her in peace. Story 3. The Wedding of the Hill Folk, Norway. The girl felt her own presence to be an insipid, pale intrusion in this pine-dominated mountain pasture, where the expanse of summer sky and the rocky outcrops of the mountains, like a trollfish bursting through supple grassy pastures, all seemed to converge on her tiny form. And Ingebjorg, the dairymaid, always felt this way every year 
when she stayed alone on the summer farms, caring for and milking the cattle. She felt the density of the summer mountain pastures with both thrill and trepidation. Everything, the cloud-shrouded mountains and the bluish haze of ethereal pastures in the distance, everything seemed alive with a keen intelligence, breathed in overwhelming, lonely freedom into your mind. Yet this sense that at any moment the wind could take you into the eternal sphere of the sky, well, this butted up against the density of harboring, brooding copses of pines, the weight of turf-roofed huts made of dense, dark wood and mounted on flat boulders. Ingebjörg fancied herself a creature of the air, felt celestial in her mind while gazing at the blue skies after an aching day of milking and hauling. She was the air, but he, he was all rock and earth hollows and all the weight of eons of forest detritus. Last year, last summer, he had snuck into her hut, spoke sap-soaked words. Wasn't she lonely in this bed? Wouldn't she like a companion? But she knew who he was, could smell the holder scent on his skin and breath, could feel the lusty weight of his breath and desire as he leaned over her. And though a man, his entire demeanor seemed infused with the huff and grunt of a bull. With authority, she told him to shove off, to weave his nasty magic over the sleeping form of another dairymaid on another summer farm, because she simply wasn't interested. But then, a clever smile had spread across her face, and as he left, she said, There's a Holdra bull, a fey bull, that's after one of my cows. What can I do? And before he took his leave, he had answered, Take woody nightshade and orcus and some tree sap and put it on the cow's tail. This will repel the invisible bull. And he returned the next evening to find that Inga Bjork had put the mixture on her own braids. And he cursed and spat in her direction, angered by her cunning, for he couldn't come near her. And for that cunning, she had been cursed for an entire winter with arthritis so excruciating she thought the envious hook of a crumbling old woman was sapping her youth. That she'd been cursed by some old crone. But she had seen a wise woman in the woods and had been cured of the curse. Tonight, as she lay in bed, this summer, as twilight hazed and stroked the mountains, Inga Bjork felt a presence fall upon the world, felt all the ethereal lightness of twilight like groped by a dense and a heaving presence. Just outside the door, her dog whimpered and yelped as if someone had stepped on his paw or tweaked his ear. Then, another yelp that echoed into complete silence. A density of terror in her chest and a vague indecisiveness overcame her. The door flew open, as if invited in for a party, the hill people, burst in, all chattering and laughter and tramping around, completely oblivious to her shouted protests. And amidst them was the hill man she had tricked and duped last summer. He stood still and grinned at her like how old men leer, but with the self-entitlement of beauty and youth. 
His entourage had arms loaded with silks and laces and bundles of colorful cloth, huge loaves and berries and feasting amounts of food. One of the hill people yanked Ingebjorg up by the arm, the strength of the grip bruising her, and though Ingebjorg struggled and shouted, the hill people chattered happily, as if they were being welcomed with open arms. The girl was so disturbed by the distant and oblivious expressions, so disturbed by their utter oblivion to her terror, that she stopped. All urges to bite and tear and wriggle seemed to bottom out through her plummeting stomach. They dragged her outside, where a beautiful table was set, and dumped the food and drink, laughing and shouting, even erupting into snatches of song. And in full view of the duped hillman, they began to unlace her shirt, to wriggle her skirts down her hips. Snickers of ribald humor made her feel nauseous, and a hatred for the smirking hillman woke her will. In the midst of the chaos and through the shirt being pulled over her head, she commanded the dog to return to the home farm to get her brother. And as the dog set off unnoticed, Ingebjorg shivered in the fading evening light in her underclothes, encircled by hill women who grinned and sneered and promised her that the hillman to whom she was promised would be gentle with her. And the dairymaid shouted, spittle-laced rage at the hillwomen, who were all smiles and hand-clapping, like delighted, idiotic children. They cooed and purred and demurred as a silk undergarment, heavy as dark waterfall, was dragged over her head. They nodded their approval as laces woven with black magic and metallic sting were draped on her figure. They stood back and surveyed her as if she were a cow or a shed, and Ingebjorg felt her mind and chest cave in with the demonic weight of their oblivion. The most opaque and demeaning of magic was at work, seeping from the wedding clothes, for that's what they were, and into her skin and blood and bones. And when this oppressive magic gripped her throat, she was terrified to find that she could not speak, could not protest, could not refuse the giving of her very self. And with the same deaf and dumb enthusiasm, the hillwomen pulled her towards the hillman, who stood with his hands clasped in front of him, a mock seriousness on his face, a false dignity that made his leering eyes even more nauseating. The hill people surrounded them, as if they were about to exchange wedding vows, the women beamed at Ingebjorg with expressions she longed to smack. Ingebjorg wanted to spit in their ridiculous beaming gazes, but she was paralyzed. And as the hillman came closer, as he pulled her to him for the final vow, for the final taking, the excruciating weight on Ingebjorg's soul and bones, the rupturing, unreleased rage that made it seem as if her stomach was splitting. Well, this lifted slightly, and the dairymaid was relieved to see that all the hill folk had paused in this strange wedding procession. The hill folk were listening. A distant pounding of horse hoofs came closer with surprising speed, and when a shrill neighing soared through the valley, Ingebjorg's heart soared with it. 
the tightening in her throat that felt like funeral grief and a chokehold at the same time. This broke and she felt a presence, the power of her own spirit gathering in her throat, felt the supple sky expanse of her own dear willpower surge into her mouth and she cried out, Thank God, I hear my brother's horse neighing. Then, in Inga Bjorg's arms, she felt something like the white waters of a raging mountain river, something powerful breaking apart, a calcified grit in her blood. And when she found that her arms could move, she made a cross with her arms over her chest and then raised her arms above her head and made a cross. And the hill folk suddenly dissipated into nothing. And when her brother arrived, he was stunned to see her dressed as a bride. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Folkloric Nordica, um, which is a series on Nordic folklore. Um, if you haven't listened to the other episodes, I would highly suggest giving those a listen as well, because Nordic folklore is indeed fascinating. The next episode that I'll be working on is called The Winter Wilds, and I'm hoping to release that um, perhaps more in November, perhaps even earlier. I am also working with a, um, a woman named Leah Broad, who is um, an expert PhD in Nordic composition and music, and we might be looking at doing a episode on Finnish folklore, extending that a bit, and um, the links with classical music, so that might be coming up as well. I am also, I, I had a bit of a revelation um, when I was doing a solo hike in the Black Forest this summer in Germany, and that was how much I love this planet and how much uh, the natural world and having access to that is not um, a luxury for me, it is a necessity. So I am in the process of planning a special series called Earth Lore that would look at both the folklore of perhaps plants in the natural world and animals um, and maybe legends and myths attached to those things, but also um, I, I'm, what I'd like is to have a guest, perhaps, um, perhaps a, a scientist, ecologist, but various experts who can look at the scientific links and the ecological links. I'm starting to do some reading in ethnoecology, which is a fascinating field, um, and this is just a burgeoning idea, but what I'm hoping is it will inspire people um, to take action to protect and preserve this um, incredible planet that we have. If you have not followed me on Twitter, I am there as Mythos, or Podcast Mythos. Um, I am also on Instagram and um, the Facebook page if you go ahead and go to Mythos Podcast, you will um, be able to get hopefully regular updates on these projects. I'm also, I'm, I'm debating between whether I would want to do Baltic folklore next day with Europe or move on to um, going a bit further across um, the planet, at least from my standpoint, and looking at Japanese and Korean folklore. 
I would love to hear from you about what interests you. Um, Baltic folklore would focus a great deal on uh, places like Lithuania and Estonia, perhaps even a bit of Poland, um, but places that are less well known. And so therefore, um, perhaps the folklore would be even more interesting. But there's a, a lot of cultural awareness, I think, um, because of film and anime, etc., um, of Japanese folklore, particularly film and Korean folklore. So please leave me a note on Facebook or go to my website, send me a message and let me know what you would prefer, what you think um, is a bit more interesting because I definitely want to kind of cater to the interests of my audience. So please go to Facebook, Twitter, etc. Um, go ahead and like and follow so you can see what I'm up to. And again, thank you very much for listening. The next episode will be Winter Wilds. And of course, give me suggestions if there are aspects of Nordic folklore that you think I'm missing in the series that you'd like to hear more of, please let me know. Again, you can email me via the website um, or go to Facebook or message me through Twitter or follow me on Twitter. I am happy to hear your suggestions. Thanks again. Oh, also, I did have the, um, the wonderful opportunity of speaking um, or taking part in a panel discussion for the BBC Proms this summer. And um, I will, I, I think the link is actually on Facebook to listen to, but um, I, the interval talk for the BBC Proms, and the Proms, of course, is a very famous classical music or a series of classical music concerts throughout the summer. Um, there was a performance of Russian and particularly Finnish um, music, and my discussion that I took part in was looking at Nordic folklore and how it might link with the music. So the link for that BBC talk is actually on their podcast. It's on Facebook. Please have a listen. The music is stunning, um, and I would like to think that the talk um, is interesting. So again, thank you very much, and hope to hear from you soon.